Thank you for listening to our church podcast where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. Most of the sermons will be preached by our founding pastor, John Cole. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m. for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. All right, so we're back in Philippians chapter 2, and we were here three Sundays ago, and prior to that, we were in chapter 1. I don't know if you remember any of that. It's kind of hard to do that, but let me try to bring us back just a little bit as we get into the message today. Today, we're going to preach uh, through this text here on the topic of Christ-like humility, Christ-like humility. Three weeks ago when I, was, when I was sharing this, I was going to get to Christ-like humility, and we really didn't get past the Christ-like example that was first given so that way we could then look at the humility that God wants us to have. And so today we are going to address having Christ-like humility as believers and as a church. But the book, if you recall, goes back in the very beginning of chapter 1. If, if you want to just glance at it with me as I go through it, Paul is writing to these believers in Philippi, and Paul has had an endearing relationship with them. He's had a relationship of joy, a relationship of partnership in the gospel, and he is sharing that partnership with them. He is greeting them in love and letting them know how he uh, enjoys just thinking about the times they've had together from the first day he was with them until this time. And he is sharing with them how he expects that God will continue to do the work that he began in them. He will continue that work. And he gives them some teaching and instruction along those lines. And then Paul goes on in chapter 1, and he talks about how God stirred up his life and changed some things to bring a furtherance of the gospel, and how him being in prison wasn't that so bad. At first, he, he had to have thought, that it was, maybe he would have thought it was a, a bad thing. I don't really know how Paul was going through and his emotions and mindset at the very moment. I know what mine would be if I was immediately being arrested and, and going through persecution and being imprisoned. At first, you don't typically think soundly. Maybe Paul did. But what we do know is that Paul was thinking soundly here in Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, as he began to describe how God was using him being in prison for the furtherance of the gospel. The guards that were chained to him were hearing the gospel. There were people coming to where he was, and they probably in Rome in a hired house hearing the gospel. He was writing epistles and letters to churches, and so he was thankful for that. And then he went on, if you remember, in chapter 1, and he began to talk about how he would hope that he would be freed from prison. But if he doesn't, if he's not free from prison, that's okay. His ultimate salvation will come in the presence of Jesus Christ. And he actually said that he probably would rather just go and die and be executed and be with Christ. But as part of this great example of someone who would suffer for the sake of others, he said it was really more necessary that I stay alive and I continue to serve and minister to you and other people like you. And then the end of the chapter, we saw where the example of Christ begins to take place here in verse 27 of chapter 1 in Philippians. And I do want us to go ahead and read that verse before we get into the uh, chapter 2. 
Here we see the example of Christ beginning to develop in verse 27. Only let your conversation, your manner of life, be as it becometh or is worthy of the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent. So whether I come and see you, whether I'm not with you, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing terrified by your adversities, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given, catch this now, in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. So Paul is encouraging them to stand fast, to walk worthy of the gospel, just as Christ suffered. You are suffering, and you're seeing me suffer, and these testimonies, this example of Christ, continue being faithful together, striving together amidst suffering, difficulty, persecution, is what he is telling them. Knowing that the very gospel that we believe came through suffering, Christ suffering for us. Then chapter 2 then goes on and it begins to give a specific admonition not only to to be together and to strive together, but then it builds on that and it continues that theme because we're going to see that in a few minutes, but it really zeroes in on humility in the first few verses here. Humility as a necessity to striving together. Humility as a necessity to having one mind. But before we looked at those verses... Three weeks ago, we actually went to verse 5, and we looked down through verse 11, and we, and we didn't get beyond this. So I want to give us a little bit of that, a little bit of review on Christ's example. Christ's example here, as I mentioned before, is sometimes, it's called a hymn of Christ. It's very poetic. This is very central to the whole book. After this, you're going to see testimonies of Timothy and testimonies of of Epaphroditus and an example or testimony of Apostle Paul. And so Jesus Christ, his testimony is central to the whole message here of Philippians. And it's central to being able to follow the first few verses and the verses after it. And so beginning at verse 5, please notice with me where it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Saying, let this mindset that Christ had also be in you. This mindset that we're going to drill down and teach about today. But he pointed out the example of Christ. And in verses 5 through 8, we saw the humility of Jesus Christ three weeks ago. And I want to read it again because it's, it's so important for us to consider in understanding how to live out Christ-like humility. So let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. It took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus, who is equal with God, he is one with God the Father, and is equal with God the Holy Spirit, why would he make himself of no reputation? Why would he make himself of the form of a servant? Is it wrong for him to be exalted and acknowledged as God? Of course not. Just a couple verses later, he is exalted and lifted up. 
It is not wrong for him to do that. So why would he do this? Is that some kind of false humility? Is it some, well, I don't want to say how good I am, so I'm just going to act like I'm not that good. Is that what Jesus was doing? Of course not. Humility was for a purpose. The humbling of himself to the form of a servant, a being of no reputation, was all for a purpose. The purpose, as we'll continue to read, is found right here in these verses. It says in verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why did he humble himself? For others. Why did he humble himself? For the redemptive story that he wrote. Why did he humble himself? To be obedient to the Father. He humbled himself for his plan, his purpose of saving and redeeming lost, condemned souls. He humbled himself because it was vital for the purpose of him even coming. He didn't humble himself because he had to say, well, I didn't have to, uh, I don't have to be called God. Oh, don't call me king. Don't call me king. I don't need to be called king. He's okay being called king. He actually tells us to call him Lord. We're to consider him our master. We're to consider him our king. It wasn't because it's wrong for him to be exalted in the proper sense and to be glorified, but it was for the purpose of being obedient to the cross. It was for the purpose of his substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection. Then we keep reading, we see in verse 9, that he is exalted. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That same Jesus that every knee will bow to humbled himself. And we think today about the reality that he could return at any time. Soon we will be in his presence. In respect to eternity, it will be soon. If it's five years, if it's ten years, if it's a thousand years, it still will be soon where Christ will return. I shared last time when we were together, uh, and John, if you could just put a couple of those pictures up, advance a couple times here. I shared this, and I got to share it to you just briefly anyways. When we think of things like this, viruses spreading or earthquakes happening like in the Middle East and Turkey or next picture there, Johnny. We talked about the fires, and I figured it would have helped for you to be able to see it, but I was going through quickly last week, so I didn't do it. But really, to just think for a moment about the, the fires happening in Sydney, at least 4 million, I don't know what a hectare is, is uh, had burned in New South Wales since July 1, and then the Amazon fires, and then the California fires. And just giving a little bit of a comparison here, the fires there being higher, taller than the Sydney Opera House, which I've seen before. So I thought that was pretty pretty interesting. Thinking about the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the, the world things that are happening, we ought to always be thinking about the return of Jesus Christ. It could happen at any time. And we will see him as king. We will see him as Lord. He will sit on the throne and he will usher in the new heaven and the new earth and all things will be made right. It'll be made like Eden. All things will be true under Christ. It's gonna be a wonderful, glorious thing. But we see that while Jesus is worthy of exaltation, while he is God the Son, he humbled himself to be obedient to the cross for the purpose that God planned, the purpose of redemption, the gospel. And that's the example that God is using Paul to write to these Philippian believers to say, now considering this example, 
this person. Here's some things before it, exhorting to be unified in harmony and humility. And then after that, being obedient like Christ. And we'll look at that next week. Being obedient. God working faithfully through us. But these first few verses, the first four verses, is where I'd like to draw our attention to today in light of Christ's example of humility. If he could humble himself, no one has an excuse not to. If he could make himself of no reputation, if he could be obedient to something that is painful and difficult for the purpose of God, so can you and so can I. And so we're going to talk about Christ-like humility today in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy. Give me joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each other esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. He's saying here, if we have a shared love in Christ, complete my joy by being humble, in humble, selfless unity with one another, following Christ's example. Listen to that again. He's saying, if we have shared love in Christ, complete my joy by being in humble, selfless unity with one another, following Christ's example. Be in humble, selfless unity. If you ever have a difficult time of being humble, or maybe you have an attack of importance, I've heard it said before, just call your mother. She'll help put it in perspective. But let's consider the instruction toward Christ-like humility that's given in these verses. We begin with verse 2, where we see the instruction to be unified in Christ. To be unified in Christ. Fulfill ye my joy that you be unified in Christ. Let's break that down and look at it phrase by phrase. We start off first by be like-minded. Be like-minded. It means to have the same mindset. It's to dispose or frame the mind in a certain way. So to be like-minded is to take my mind and to frame it into a certain way and to say, I have this, this mindset, this frame of mind. So he's telling them to have this unified framework in which they think. It doesn't mean to think everything the same. It doesn't mean that I have the same opinion about everything as you have. We are able to disagree and still be like-minded. We can still dispute. We can grow each other. We can teach each other. We can have different perspectives, even on such things as, as politics or preferences of food or weather that we like or entertainments that we like or even gray areas of doctrine or preference that we have in the Scriptures. But to be like-minded, we have a frame that our mind is in, and the frame is Christ's example. The frame is, is to look at the example of Christ and to frame my mindset in there. 
and that my mindset is framed within there. When we each have Christ's mindset, we are like-minded. When we have the mind of Christ and a framed-in mind that is we are trying to think like Christ, be like Christ, follow His example, that brings us into a same mindset. Notice how this is consistent throughout this book. If you will, take your Bibles and turn just a little bit with me in chapter 1 and verse 27 that we already looked at. I just want to point out uh, one thing in here, and that's towards the very end of it. Notice he tells them to stand fast in one spirit with what? One mind. Keeps repeating this thought of one mind. And then we just saw here in verse 2 to be like-minded, and we'll see it at the end of verse 2 as well. And then verse 5, notice it says in verse 5, let this mind be in you. And then if you'll notice with me in chapter 3 and verse 15, chapter 3 and verse 15, here we see, let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And then it goes on to say, if anything, he be otherwise minded. God shall reveal this unto you. Verse 16, nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, is talking about the mindset you don't want to have. And notice it at the very end there, it says, who mind earthly things. That's the mindset, a framework of thinking that you don't want to have. Then if you'll notice with me in chapter 4 and verse 2, I beseech Iodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. The same mind in the Lord. Then if you'll notice with me in chapter 4 and verse 7, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There's just a lot of emphasis on having a mindset here in this book, a mindset, a framework of thinking, an attitude. It's not, again, it doesn't mean we all think exactly the same thing, but we all have a similar framework, or some people call a worldview, but we have a frame of mind, an example of Christ that is the frame by which we think. But he not only says to have the same mindset, but notice also having the same love, the same love. And this love would include, and I believe is the, the focus of it, is a love for Christ and one another. It is not just enough to have the same mindset, but we also must have the same love and affection. It is possible to have my mind in one place and my heart desires in another. You ever been there? You ever had something where your mind, you have a mindset, and you believe this, this is your framework, but your heart was not there. And your, because your heart wasn't there, your actions didn't go there. So you believe this, but you, your heart wasn't there. So he's just drilling down further and saying, we need to have the same mindset and we need to have the same love. We need the same love. Then he goes on and he says, being of one accord. Being of one accord. And that means to have the same spirit. To have the same spirit, to be unified in spirit. Each of these, I didn't belabor you with the Greek words with all of these. If I say it correctly, sim sechoi, I think. David, I'm massacring it. I did listen to it, but I always mess them up if they're hard. 
But being of one accord, it means to be unified in spirit. As they live with the same mindset and love, they pull together with a cooperative spirit and harmony. Being of one accord necessitates intentional emotions, countenance, and interactions. It's not enough just for me to have the same mindset and even to have the same heart, but I also have to have the same spirit. And I have to have the same, I have to be intentional with my emotions, my countenance, and interactions with one another as I'm going the right same direction, having the same love, having the same mindset. We can have the same mindset and the same love affection all while not being unified in our spirit with one another. Example I, I thought about when trying to consider this was children. If we take our children off to a field trip for some fun family activity and we go, they all pretty much have the same mindset. They are thinking like if we're going to an amusement park, they're all thinking about what they're going to do at the amusement park. They're all thinking about going upside down and going fast on the, the rides and just having a great time. And they all have a pretty much a similar love for what they're about to do. Their mindset is all what they're about to do and they can't stop thinking about it and talking about it. Their heart is filled with an affection and love for what they're about to do. But that doesn't necessarily mean they are unified in spirit. They're here excited about where they're going and they're sitting in the car back with each other, but then one nudges one with an elbow. Ooh, then it starts. Domino effect. Then the next one pushes the face that way because they got nudged in the, with the elbow. And when they push them that way, then the head conks the other head. And then that one gets mad because the person in the middle conked their head with their head. And so then they punch them and they they give them what's called a dead leg. You know what a dead leg is, right? And I'm painting the picture of really what me and my brothers were like. Our kids are so much better. Actually, we're just smart enough to try to have them in separate seats where they can't touch each other. But I remember growing up as kids and we would have the bench seat and you couldn't help but touch each other. And while you're going with the same mindset and the same love and affection of where you're headed and you're excited about what you're doing, there's not a same spirit with each other, a unified spirit. And so you're fighting along the way, but you have the same heart, you have the same love, you have the same mindset, you're excited about where you're going, but you're not getting along on the journey. And Paul is saying here, God is using him to write to these Philippian believers and for us to apply for ourselves that God wants his people to cooperate in harmony while still maintaining their distinct diversities and having the same mindset and having the same love, have the same mindset, have the same love, but also be in harmony with one another. And then he ends it by pretty much just restating how he started it. And notice it says, and of one mind. It's the same Greek word, as like-minded. It's the same. It's to have the same mindset, to dispose or frame the mind in a certain way. And this is a repeat of the beginning as an emphasis, bringing this verse all together. It's all about, I just want you to be in unity with one another around the same focus, the same purpose, the same passion. You're different from each other, and that's fine, and it stay that way. The body of Christ is a beautiful thing with many different people with different preferences, different tastes, different backgrounds, but we're unified. And that's what's so exciting about the body of Christ and the church that Christ purchased is you can have people that are so different from each other, yet so unified. And the gospel, Christ, is the unifier. 
We're not unified about our preferences. We're unified about Christ. And so Jesus is our example for that, and we are instructed to be like-minded with the same mindset, having the same love, being of one accord with the same spirit, so that way we are in harmony as we're going the same direction for the same purpose for Christ. Now we'll go on to verse 3 here. And notice with me in verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And so this is really teaching us to think less of yourself and more of others. Think less of yourself and more of others. Now this, this might sound all right, but it's not really something we do enough of. Because typically our favorite person to think about is me, myself, and I. We don't do it intentionally, but our world is wrapped around us. It's wrapped around me. And when we think less of ourselves and more of others, we're able to follow what is taught in verse 3. It begins by saying, do nothing with strife or vain glory. Do nothing with, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. There's no room for selfish ambition or conceit in the church. He's saying, let nothing. There is no room. There is no room for this selfish ambition, this strife, this vain glory, this empty glory, glorifying of myself and glorifying toward the one that doesn't deserve the glory. There is no room. Our purpose is Christ, and he gets all the glory. Our purpose is Christ, and he gets all the glory. Consider what Paul said in verse 21 of verse 1. Remember when he said, for me to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. There's no room for the believers. There's no room in the church for selfishness and strive to be caused because of thinking too much of ourselves. because truly, as Paul said, and this is convicting to me, I would imagine convicting to each of us, because it is not normal. It is not natural for us to think this way. This is not a self-help idea of, well, just think about other people. Jesus is saying there's no room, there's no room for me to be selfish in my thinking and to have selfish ambition. And to have conceit in the church, to have strife and vainglory. And then he goes on to say, in lowliness of mind, esteem others better. In lowliness of mind, esteem others better. Better than what? You. Me. Better than ourselves. Now this goes even further. And when you, when you start going this far, it's almost like, okay, now you're going too far. I get it, I, should, I shouldn't think so much about myself. But for you to then go further and say, I need, to, I need to think about others more than myself, more than me, this is saying to consider others more important than you. That does not mean that you and I should consider ourselves unimportant. Remember, we're to follow the example of Christ here, okay? Christ is the example. Did Christ consider himself unimportant? No. 
Jesus Christ knew who he was, and he said who he was. And he, he taught and said how he, was, he is the way, the truth, the life. He is the I am. He is the door. He is our king. We know these things. So he didn't teach that he was unimportant, but he made himself of no importance, made himself of no reputation. Why? For others. And loneliness of mind esteeming others better. Remember, we're to follow the example of Christ. Christ is highly exalted, but he chose to consider others more important in the act of his obedience to the cross. In that action. Again, it, it doesn't mean walking around, oh, I'm not important. That's that false humility. We go around and someone says something nice to you and, oh, no, I know that's not true. I, I'm never good at anything. It's not talking about having a false humility where, where, where you try to act like you're not important at all. It's saying to look out of, outside of you and see that there are in others that are important to God, important to Christ, and your brothers and sisters in Christ to consider them more important. While we know we're important to God and to our loved ones, we need to look beyond ourselves and consider the importance of others Stop and try to look at others from the lens of Jesus. Stop and try to consider other people through the lens of Jesus, how he looks at others, at our brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll find that the other brothers and sisters in Christ that we observed are just as important as us. Try this. Try observing just sitting and observing and looking at people. Don't do it right now because it would be awkward. But another time, try to just, just picture other people and picture their life and try to even see a little bit of their life, where they might be, and think, they are so important. That's much of what we do when we pray. Just look at other people in this room. Again, not right now. But take some time to consider other people in this room and get a mental snapshot of them and to just try to think about their life and to think about how they're important to Christ and how Jesus was obedient to the cross for them and esteemed them better than you. Think of their life as every bit as important as yours to God. And as I think through my life, too often I can get wrapped up in my life and not consider the person right there that they're absolutely, as another brother and sister in Christ, their life, God using them in the gospel and all the, even the interests that they have are just as important. And I ought to esteem them higher. But it takes time to think and pray for people. Journal about people. Write down a thought, a prayer request. Lord, I pray that you do this for this person. Help me to esteem them higher. And just think about one another. Get to know each other enough to where we can pray for each other intelligently. Here's a statement I'd like to share with you. When we get too caught up in ourselves, we look right past the people God has placed in our lives to love. Man, I know I've done this. When we get too caught up, and when we say get caught up in ourselves, it, they might be good things we're caught up in. It might be your job and vocation. It might be things you're trying to do for your family. It might be things you're trying to do for this church. It might be paying off a building. It, it might be wanting to see God use us to reach people, whatever it might be. But I can get so caught up in where I'm going and miss a person God brought right across my path. 
consider God's bringing them across their path. I'm going down and I've got my ambition that I'm going towards. And it might even be a good ambition. And I'm trying to accomplish it. God brings someone across my path. And I'm like, well, I don't have time for that right now. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. But that person needs to be considered. We, when we get too caught up in ourselves, we look right past the people God has placed in our lives to love. Then we see in verse 4, if you'll look with me there, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Replace self-interest with love. Replace self-interest with an active, charitable love. Replace self-interest with love. This is the example that Christ gave for us. Though he is worthy of all interest, all glory, all honor, all attention, yet he would choose to become of no reputation for us. Replace self-interest with love. So a couple, two statements about that as we'll come to a conclusion is, look not on your own interests. Look not on your own interests. Now that statement again is strong. What do you mean don't look on your own interests? And remember, when it talked about in a moment we see looking on the needs and interests of others, it's not just looking at others, it's looking at their interests. This tells us here in verse 4, look not every man on his own things. His own things. It doesn't just mean to consider yourself important, but literally not to look on my own things. I can get so consumed with my things that I have going on in my life that I don't see anything outside of it because I got to achieve those things. But this doesn't mean to abandon your responsibilities. That would be negligent. It means to not let them cripple you. It doesn't mean to abandon your responsibilities. We must work jobs. We can't be the, the people that, that were negligent in this area in Thessalonica who started thinking about the return of Jesus Christ coming. They got so excited about some of the people stopped working. And then they were corrected about it. So this doesn't mean to just abandon my, my responsibilities for other people. I'm just going to live a life for other people. Well, if you don't take care of any of your things, you're not going to have anything to give to other people. You'll be broke and you have nothing. And not only that, but if you don't give interest on, say, reading the scriptures and feeding yourself in time of prayer and time of rest, you're not going to be any good for anyone if, if you and I don't have any time to pray, to read our Bible, to sleep. It's going to be pretty hard to be someone that practices humility and cares about the interests of others if they get no sleep. Oh, I bet, yeah, you're probably laughing because David's like, I'm ready to go to sleep. He's on that new schedule of working all night and so, uh, good for you, but you'll make it through it, David. I'm going to yell a little louder for you just to wake you up. But the whole idea here is that it doesn't mean to abandon my responsibilities, but I'm not to look with a longing on my interests. It look like I've got this guard on my eyes and I can't see anything else and I'm just on my own interests, but I'm actually step away from my interests and know that a lot of times we can find that we can do a whole lot more than we really think. We think, well, I just got to be focused on this. I got to be focused on my things. But one of the most liberating ways to live is while you feel that way, to still step back and say, others. While you're like, you know, I don't have time for anything else except for to take care of my things, to step back from my things and to look at other people's things and to say, what can I do for them? What can I do for Christ? 
What can I do for others? If you let your things cripple you from looking at the interests of others and other people's, when you do that, if you say, well, I gotta wait till I don't need to look at my things, I'm sure Satan will work really hard to make sure you keep having things to look at. But you and I, if we can just step back and say, I've got a lot of things to look at right now, but I gotta lift my eyes from them. I gotta step away from them. I've gotta pray for some other people. I gotta care about some other people. I gotta care about the things of Christ. I gotta step back from my things and look at the things of others. Again, we might say, oh, I can't do that, but we can do more than we think. Military personnel are told this all the time. I'm told that they're told that you can push your body. They're constantly reminded you can push your body way beyond what you think you can. And they find that because they get pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And what you and I think, you know, running a, running a mile, oh, that'd be so bad. And they're running like 20 with a backpack that's 90 pounds on it. And they haven't slept for two days because they're trying to become a ranger or something like that. And they're going through all of this intense difficulty. And there was a time where they might have had a, a low day where they felt like, I can't even get up and change the channel you know, on my TV because the remote's over there. And, and it's so funny in perspective what you think you can't do. And then next you know it, you get pushed to push to push and you find you can do more. And while we manage our affairs, we must, we must take time to detach and look away and look at other people's. God is telling us to not be fixated on our own interests. And then lastly, here we see in verse 4, but every man also on the things of others. This is telling us to look on the needs and interests of others. Look on the needs and interests of others, and that's only going to happen if I'm willing to step away from the needs and interests of mine. So I must step away. And Jesus Christ is the example for this. God created the world out of nothing. As long as we are nothing, God will likely make something out of us. When we get too filled with ourselves, and we get too filled with our own interests. We begin to get a stiff neck towards God and what He's wanting to do. We begin to become a hard piece of clay. The potter has to get more forceful as he works on us. I don't want to be a hard piece of clay. I want to be a soft piece of clay and let Him do His wonderful work in us. So ask yourself this in conclusion today. Ask, am I willing to humble myself as did Christ? Am I willing to humble myself as did Christ? What is humility? It's the whole message we just looked at. I'm not going to go back through it all. Go back through and listen to the message again. But everything we looked at, read back through these verses. And everything you see in these verses of being like-minded, same love, one accord, one mind. Uh, not having strife, not having vain glory, being a lowly mind, not looking only on my own interests, but the interests of others. That just is building towards this humility of Christ. Ask yourself, will I live and serve Christ in unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Not only will I be humble, but will I live and serve Christ in unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ? And one more question for you to consider. Will I place the true needs of others above my own ambitions? Will I place the true needs of others above my own ambitions? Today we saw two things.
We saw Christ's example that we had looked at three Sundays ago. And then we saw Christ-like humility. We are taking as application what was being admonished to the Philippian believers to find joy in this Christ-like humility, to go towards it, not run from it. It's a wonderful thing to be Christ-like and to be humble. Will you practice Christ-like humility? We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.